0: In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides, the prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. Hi, I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler shares details on his time as a young lawyer of the Department of Justice under Bobby Kennedy. Mike was in the room as RFK and legendary U.S. Attorney Robert Morgenthau go after the Italian mob. Here's a little backstory about Mike. You can find out more in the book. He began his career as a relatively young man, Having skipped through grades in elementary school, he graduated high school at the age of 16 and immediately enrolled as an undergraduate at Cornell, where he majored in history. Incidentally, history remains a passion of his. He's currently enrolled in a class about the Roman Empire at Tulane. During his college years, he spent his summers interning at the ACLU, but his decision to enroll in law school was because, he says, he didn't know what to do with his life. He was eventually accepted into Columbia Law, class of 1959. One of his classmates, by the way, was a transfer student from Harvard Law School named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But because of a small hiccup involving his class on trusts and estates, Mike didn't end up actually graduating with the notorious RBG. He lands on his feet, though, and gets a gig at the Department of Justice. It was
1: 1960. Spring of '60s, something like that. and I was what it was in the administrative regulations sections, which included immigration and naturalization. I was anxious that's an understatement mm-hmm. to get into court. The prosecutor in the Southern District of York who handled all the immigration work was a man named Roy Babbitt, an assistant, whom I had known several years before when I was a student assistant. In any event, he had lost the case. A woman had been denied naturalization.
0: That woman was Mrs. Marie Pasusta, an immigrant from Czechoslovakia. Babbitt had successfully argued in district court that by living with her future husband out of wedlock, she was not, according to the statute, of, quote, good
1: moral character. Roy saw the handwriting on the wall, decided, since I had been in touch with him, was nudging him to get me a case to argue on Second Circuit. He sent me this case for the Paseuster case, and I read it over, and in my naivety, convinced myself I could win the case. Went up to New York, it was the first time I had ever appeared in court, and you're up on, I forget, the 22nd floor of this famed federal courthouse building on Foley Square. And as I recall, I was the second case on the docket. Roy had another immigration case. He was first. When Roy finished arguing his case and I started walking up to the podium for my case, Sterry Waterman got up and disappeared behind the curtain. And out came Learned Hand. And he came out using a walker to take a seat on the panel.
0: Learned Hand is the most quoted lower court judge in U.S. history. At this point in 1960, he's 89 years old and already widely considered one of the finest appeals court judges in the history of the United States. Now, fresh out of law school, Mike Fowler would be arguing his first case before Judge Hand.
1: My guess is the panel realized that the issue is good moral character and Hand had written every major opinion relating to good moral character. Then for the next 40 minutes, which is much longer than the time normally allotted, Hand and I basically were engaged in a civil discourse about this case and whether or not she had good moral character. I was arguing she did not. Three, four, five months later, maybe less, Hand wrote down an opinion and he basically said, given all the circumstances. Her uh, character was as good as need be under under the circumstances, and he granted her naturalization.
0: In January of 1961, Judge Hand issued an opinion reversing the district court's denial, quoting, The statute is not penal. It does not mean to punish for past conduct, but to admit as citizens those who are likely to prove law-abiding and useful. Their past is, of course, some index of what is permanent in their makeup, but the test is what they will be if they become citizens. We hold the petitioner was a person of good moral character as is necessary to become a citizen, end quote. Judge Learned Hand would die eight months later on August 18th, 1961. His replacement would be appointed by the new president, Camille Gravel's good friend, John F. Kennedy. That made Mike's new boss, Robert Francis Kennedy. As Attorney General Bobby Kennedy famously pursued La Cosa Nostra, The notorious sicilian mafia
1: seeing stuff come across my desk relating to immigration and what came across my desk was a memo which related to carlos marcelo who as you say was the alleged mafia chief back in 58 allegedly attended the meeting of all mafia heads nationwide up in appalachia new york but was not caught up there. But he was under an order of deportation. The problem was, they he was probably born in Tunisia, I, Tunis, I believe. The United States tried to deport him to Tunis, but they wouldn't take him. But by the time I'm in the department, Kennedy administration had pressed hard enough to get Italy to agree to take him. Word had gotten back to Marcello it. When he learned of it, he made arrangements for some cohort to go into the mountains of Guatemala and find the small church where there was a forged birth certificate for Carlos was manufactured. And it was filed in the embassy in Guatemala. And it was clearly forged. I wrote a memo saying, hey, you know, it's a forgery. How can you, deport him based on to a country that you know he wasn't born in. But now they had this phony certificate said he was born in Guatemala. So when he reported as he had to every, let's say, 30 days to the immigration office in New Orleans, they grabbed him, put him on the plane, flew him to Guatemala.
0: Marcelo would find his way back to New Orleans within a few weeks. Mike then meets Assistant U.S. Attorney John Sprizzo who would go on to be a federal judge.
1: I met him at the Department of Justice. He was in the Organized Crime Division. And he had been working on an investigation involving layoff bookmakers. And the investigation was centered here in New Orleans. They were looking to add another attorney to the team. There was a guy named Ed Molinoff, who was the lead attorney. And John was able to convince him to have me join the team, which I very much wanted to do. I come down here, and it's in June of 62 I'm here for a year. Molinoff had been a prosecutor in New York, had this undeserved reputation. I didn't know it at the time as a decent trial lawyer. It became clear to me after two, three months, this guy wasn't going to want to go to trial. I had to convince John to go up to see Hundley, Bill Hundley, who was the head of organized crime, to say, you got to get rid of this guy. I mean, here's this young you know, asshole punk, me, telling a guy who's 30 years older than me that he's incompetent, and he was. I mean, we got him kicked off. He came back. Somebody else was assigned, a guy named Cunningham, who was a really good lawyer from Texas. Cunningham brought him back just because he was courteous.
0: The case involved Sam DePiazza from New Orleans, Al Money from Miami, and Gil Beckley from Covington, Kentucky. Collectively, they were the largest off-track bookmaking operation in the country.
1: And critical to having layoff bookmakers is access to telephones so that they can communicate with one another if too much betting goes down on one side than the other, lay it off to another bookmaker who might not have that same problem. So they needed lines available, and they in some way found this guy in up around Windsor, Canada, who worked for AT&T to provide long-distance telephone service between Covington, Kentucky, where Beckley was, Moans in Florida, Sam Dupiazza in New Orleans, and Nolan in Baton Rouge. And these are some of the biggest bookmakers. Sandy Piazza was bookmaker Frank Sinatra. When the FBI ran the investigation they knew that there was this deal that the bookmakers had for free long-distance service but they didn't know where the guy was. So they were wiretapping or eavesdropping on the phone calls and were able to get from little bits of information, such as the weather, you know, how are things going? Well, it's raining. So the FBI would then go look where around the country it was raining, and finally, by virtue of these little innocuous clues, figured out where the guy was and was able to pinpoint it.
0: Based on the testimony of the at and worker, the U.S. Attorney's Office is able to obtain an indictment on the bookmakers. John and Mike took on the responsibility of helping out their co-counsel, Ed.
1: We used to have to write out the questions for Molinoff to ask. John and I would do it. And we'd put notes at the bottom of the script, if they object for this ground, say this. And, you know, so he's there objecting or questioning a witness, some innocuous witness. And one of the attorneys, Jim Gilmartin from Miami, Objects. Judge sustains the objection. Ask the question another way object. And each time he's sort of following our guideline as to how to handle it. And it, each time he's doing it, he's getting knocked off. Judge is sustaining the objection. And all of a sudden, Molinoff looks at John and I and says, I'm sunk. <laughs> John and I went to two jacks. I can, I remember it so well and basically got drunk laughing about what had happened later that day.
0: The New Orleans Fairgrounds opened in 1838, and since then, people have been betting on horses, a fact that was not really considered in jury selection 130 years later.
1: We worked out of the U.S. Attorney's Office down here, and John and I, particularly me, got very friendly with Jack Cialino, called Jack, his real name was John, Uh, was a member of the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had something in common with him. Uh, He liked the horses as much as John and I did. And we just got friendly. We'd go out and have drinks together. And one day he invited John and I to come to dinner at his parents' home. And we go to the home and we have this really great Italian meal. And this is all occurring maybe a few weeks, maybe a month before we would start jury selection. His mother, Stephanie, made this great meal and then spent time showing us pictures of Jack as a kid and that stuff. And when John and I left, thanked Stephanie for the meal, left, we were saying to each other, wouldn't it be great if we could get someone just like Stephanie on our jury? Well, what we didn't know at the time, but we found out later on, is Stephanie during the fairgrounds racing season used to go, she had a seat or a box at the track and would brown bag it to the racetrack and then call in bets to her bookie every day of the week. Turns out we most likely had people on the jury who were like that and then all of them were acquitted in the course of the trial, which is inevitable in New Orleans. And luckily, I John or I had to make the call to Bobby Kennedy to give him the sad news.
0: Mike would stay on in the Southern District of New York as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Organized Crime Division.
1: I get transferred from administrative regulations upon request to the Organized Crime Section. And that's about the same time that Bobby Kennedy becomes Attorney General. I was there under Bob Morgenthau. Bob Morgenthau was appointed by John Kennedy in '60, and Bob's father was Henry Morgenthau, Secretary of the Treasury. But Morgenthau had a personal relationship with the Kennedys, so the office even became more independent. There was nobody he was afraid to go after. Profile of the defendant never inhibited Bob from prosecuting him. But Bob never took part in any trials. It just not, it wasn't his forte. Uh, he doesn't, didn't view himself as a trial attorney. He had all these great trial attorneys working for him. Uh, the cream of what became the New York defense bar, for the most part, those that came out of that U.S. attorney's office.
0: Mike was on the team that Bobby Kennedy fielded to fight La Cosa Nostra. He would travel often to D.C. for meetings with RFK and his right-hand man, the Deputy Attorney General, Byron Whizzer White, the 1938 NFL rushing champion and Yale law graduate.
1: But I always remember Whizzer White standing next to the desk of Bobby Kennedy when he would have these meetings of the organized crime section. Bobby Kennedy would be sitting with behind his desk, one foot you know, one shoe up on the desk, rolled up sleeves, tie askew, asking questions. And Wizard White would always stand with, its, you know, with his hands sort of, his arms crossed, and I think the reason is he had these huge hands. <laughs> and it was like, I, could, I just it just sort of stuck with me. He was a big guy, but he had these great hands for a football player.
0: Wizard White wouldn't be there long, In 1962, he was appointed to the United States Supreme Court by President John F. Kennedy. Mike grew as an attorney in the Organized Crime Division. In
1: 1965, I was made the head of what was called Chief of Special Prosecutions, which was really Chief of the Organized Crime Section in New York. Bob had run successfully A series of cases uh, against different mafia figures. But in the latter part of the 1960s, John Lindsay was mayor. There hadn't been any real scandal surrounding his administration until it was discovered that his water commissioner, James Marcus, had been involved in some way with taking money or being bribed
0: the case involved one of the heads of the Lucchese crime family, Antonio "Tony Ducks" Corallo, conspiring to bribe James Marcus, New York City's water commissioner, to award a contract to clean the Jerome Park Reservoir in the Bronx to a man named Henry Fried, with the help of a union official named Daniel Mato. Marcus
1: was a political lightweight. His claim to fame was being married to Lily Lodge, who was of the politically connected Lodge family in Connecticut. Lindsay had made him water commissioner. I don't know that he knew anything about it, but he was a very affable, good-looking guy and was also in debt for some stock, you know, in the stock market. And he was susceptible to being bribed, and he was to give this contract to Fried's company, Grand.
0: In addition to the testimony of James Marcus, the prosecution would rely on the testimony of an FBI informant, Henry Itkin, who had introduced Marcus to the five families of New York.
1: He was, in fact, sort of a conniving scam artist and had been, unbeknownst to his co-defendants, an informant for the FBI. He not only was an informant for the FBI, he told me and told the others who worked on the case with me. He was an informant, a confidential informant for the CIA. I didn't believe him for a moment, but nevertheless, just to cover our base, I sent a letter to the chief counsel at CIA for any and all debriefings of Itkin by whoever was handling him during a certain period of time. And about two weeks before trial, I'm in my office, and on my desk is an envelope, open it up. It's a letter from the Council of CIA confirming that Itkin was an informant handled by a guy, Mario Broad, and that he was pissed at the FBI for not helping him in some way with a custody battle involving his stepchildren. And because of his anger at the FBI, he told Mario Broad that if the FBI didn't start helping him, he was going to admit that he entrapped and ensnared the various defendants in our case. It was like a smoking gun. It was horrible.
0: Mike takes the file to the judge in the case and then turns it over to the defense. To Mike's surprise, the defense only made a passing reference to the file at trial. Then, on the third day of the trial, june 6 1968 robert f kennedy was assassinated in california while campaigning for president
1: the trial wasn't delayed but one evening that week when bobby kennedy's body was lying in state at saint patrick cathedral there was a rotation of people who asked to stand as honor guards i was one of those john was one of those they had these lights these League lights that were shining down on us. And I remember I was standing opposite Ed Sullivan, who was sweating profusely under the heat, and Daniel Moynihan, who's like 6566, was one of the other honor gods at the time I did. I think Bobby's metamorphosis from working for Joe McCarthy to ending up as a fervent civil rights advocate was sincere, and I think had he ever gone the whole way, he could have made a difference.
0: The trial proceeds without incident. All three men were convicted, and their convictions were upheld on appeal. Tony Ducks would serve three years in prison before going to become the undisputed boss of the Lucchese crime family. And thus concludes this episode of Combat in the Courtroom. There's more details in Mike's book From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at www.bronxtothebayou.com, and Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in New Orleans, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. On the next episode, we discuss Mike's defense of Charles Evers, the first African-American mayor elected in Mississippi history on a case involving accusations of political corruption. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayi Brief, and thanks for listening.